0: Welcome to the Mission Driven Mom podcast. This podcast is for moms just like you who want to learn how to glorify God through finding and embracing true principles, discovering and developing your greatest gifts, and using them to serve your family and community. Thank you so much for joining me. I am Audrey rindlis I'm the author of The Mission Driven Life and the founder of The Mission Driven Mom. I did want to mention if there are any of you who have been thinking seriously about Academy. January is one of the few times in the year when we start up new live discussion groups. And we've got some really incredible mentors who have honed their skills and put together some great stuff for discussions on level, level two discussions are starting up too. So if you're in the Academy and you've been thinking about doing level two, Those classes are starting up in the next couple weeks. So you may want to seriously consider joining the Academy. It's a great way to start the year, a great goal for this year to really discover more about who you are and strengthen your ability to care for yourself and manage yourself and develop your gifts. So fun, fun stuff happening there. want to encourage you to learn more about that. There's a new video that we've made on the Academy page that you can go watch. I do periodically these mission-driven stories. We also have podcasts that are mission-driven moms. And you could kind of say that Jean Stratton-Porter was both. Usually we have to kind of categorize them somewhere. And the people that have passed away who I can do more research on are usually the ones that are the mission-driven stories, even if they were moms and some of them were. And then the mission-driven mom podcasts are usually of interviews of women living today that are living out their missions and are incredible moms in the meantime, doing incredible things. And we have one of those mission-driven mom interviews right here, same time, same place, except for 23 minutes earlier next week in the Facebook group with Diane Jepson. She's the founder of Enzyme Peak Academy. She's been a good friend for a long time, and she has done some really phenomenal things, putting on conventions of a thousand or more people and disseminating really great educational principles, teaching and mentoring herself. She's an expert on parliamentary procedure. She puts on this simulation week that's phenomenal, an expert at events, the founder of lots of different boys and girls clubs and communities and just absolutely unbelievable. In the meantime, she raised four stellar girls They had a family band. They played everywhere and raised the money to travel Europe. I just, oh, I'm so excited for you to get to know her next week. So please show up and tell your friends and share it out. Not sure if we've created an event in the group yet, but we will do that. And you can share that event out with your friends and family who are going to want to be here and ask Diane questions and get to know her. So if you're watching live, say hi. I'm not sure who's here. Tell me where you're watching from. And uh, let's dive into the life of Gene Stratton Porter. Oh, by the way, if you didn't know, we relaunched my book, The Mission Driven Life. We actually never have made it public until now. We did sell um, a few hundred copies last year. We just released them at an event and they sold through word of mouth but we've re-released the book and I rewrote some sections of it, especially the beginning and the end. And uh, I think it's better. And I've had people tell me that it's better. It's more focused on my individual journey in conjunction with the Ten Boom family. And there's even a clear message there, I think. But if you know anyone that is interested in life mission that doesn't have a copy of that book, you might want to grab one for them. You can also kind of stimulate interest by sending them over to the mission driven mom.com website. And they, can go to the book page and grab a first chapter for free. And that can kind of stimulate some interest and give them an idea of what the book is like but that's also available on the website. Okay, Jean Stratton-Porter. You know, I have loved the book Laddie for a long time. It's been one of my favorite books. And there are a lot of reasons that I love it, and we'll get into some of those. But it's so full of wonder and grandeur and excellence and generosity and love of God and love of self and love of principles and truth and love of education. I mean, it is a book just chock full of those four laws of life mission. So, you know, I had to think, well, she's amazing. It is about Jean Stratton Porter's childhood. It's largely autobiographical. And I'm going to talk more about this and quote some things from her about her goals and objectives and what she, in the work that she did. But, you know, she, she really paints a picture of an unbelievable family. It's just very worth getting and reading. I know that she's probably most famous for *Girl, the Limberlost*. Her, one of her first novels, *Freckles*, was actually made into, I think, a silent movie, and then later on, another movie, *Girl, the Limberlost*, made into a movie. Really, really amazing. Even and *Freckles* made it to a movie in her lifetime. So I'll talk about that more in a minute. But so she tells this story of this amazing family, and it's so—I mean, of all the other beautiful principles that it teaches and wonderful things that are there. Of course, one of the one of the ones that just leaps off the pages at you over and over and over again is the faith the faith of this little girl, the faith of the family, their commitment to God. And it's just a beautiful, beautiful story. So I thought, well, certainly I'm going to have a good time learning more about her. Certainly she's going to be really, she was really mission driven to have produced a work like that. But as often happens when we read about really amazing people, of course she had weaknesses. Of course she made mistakes, but she was definitely very mission driven. She even uses the word, her call, she says, my call is to do this. And I'll tell you more. More about that in a minute. So, really, absolutely phenomenal woman. I'm super excited to tell you about. So, her parents were Mark and Mary Stratton. She's Stratton Porter, and in her book Laddie, they're the Stanton family. She took the R out, but they were married in 1835, actually the day before Christmas, and. Her mother, a couple things I'm going to pull from today, her father said about her mother that she was a 90 pound bit of pink porcelain, pink as a wild rose, plump as a partridge, having a big rope of bright brown hair, never ill a day in her life, and bearing the loveliest name ever given a woman, Mary. She was the mother of 12, this is Jean Stratton Porter talking about her she was the mother of 12 lusty babies, all of whom she reared past eight years of age, losing two a little over that, through an attack of scarlet fever with whooping cough, too ugly a combination for even such a wonderful mother as she. With this brood on her hands, she found time to keep an immaculate house, to set a table renowned in her part of the state, to entertain with unfailing hospitality all who came to her door, to beautify her home with such means as she could command, to embroider and fashion clothing by hand for her children. But her great gift was conceded by all to be the... The making of things to grow at that she was wonderful she started dainty little vines and climbing plants from tiny seeds she found in rice and coffee rooted things she soaked in water rolled in fine sand planted according to habit and they almost never failed to justify her expectations. she even grew trees and shrubs from slips and cuttings no one else would have thought of trying to cultivate her last being to cut a slip diagonally to insert the end in a small potato and plant as if rooted and it nearly always grew She goes on and on about both her parents in her book, Laddie, and talks about what incredibly exemplary people they were. Her mother tells a little bit about herself, that she came from a home where her parents were decently educated, but didn't bother to educate their children, so she couldn't even read. Her father, on the other hand, as comes out in the book, Laddie, is actually descended from British royalty, and they actually had, from the first line of descent through the male line he had a crest from the Earl of Eastbrook. And they really were British royalty. In America, that didn't really matter. He kept the chest, he kept the breastplate in a chest. And he told his family about them. And she talks, Laddie talks a lot in the book about this idea of being crusaders. And she talks about the ways in which her family were crusaders, which I think will really warm your heart because they're They're everyday things that you and I do that are so much more courageous than we give ourselves credit for. She shares a lot of really inspiring stories about them. In fact, she says, the author's father was descended from a long line of ancestors of British blood. He was named for and traced his origin to that first Mark Stratton, and his name was Mark Stratton, who lived in New York, married the famous beauty Anne Hutchinson, And settled on Stratton Island, afterward corrupted to Stanton Island. Isn't that fascinating? From that point back for many generations, they um, went back to the family of Strattons to which the Earl of Northbrook is the present head. She said about her father, all his ideas were clear cut. No man could influence him against his better judgment. He believed in God, in courtesy, in honor, and cleanliness, in beauty, and in education. He used to say that he would rather see a child of his, the author of a book of which he could be proud, than on the throne of England, which was the strongest way he knew to express himself. So he really wanted his children to develop their gifts. There's a lot of that. And she talks about that a little bit later. Uh, Some of the things that her father did to just totally express his complete and absolute belief in her and her gifts and to help her develop them. She said, his very first earnings, he spent for a book. When other men rested, he read all his life. He was a student of extraordinarily tenacious memory. He said, I never, she says, I never knew him to fail in telling where any verse quoted to him was found in the Bible. She said that he could, in, in fact, in the book, she says that his sister recited the entire, entire Bible before a committee, except for all the lines of genealogy. I don't know if that means the whole Bible or the New Testament. I'm not exactly sure what that means. But in this autobiographical um, kind of mini article that I found where she talks about her family, she said her dad could actually repeat the Bible, giving chapters and verses save the book of generations. And she said that she was really, she was almost afraid to tell people that this was the case because they wouldn't believe her. But then she found this reference that proved that it was possible. And so she would refer people to that. But in Laddie, you see a lot of um, every night they're doing a spelling bee at their house. They're memorizing lessons for the next day of school. They memorize Bible verses for the next day at church. And so he passed that legacy on of study and of memorization to his children. That was a huge part of their um, home life. So he taught his wife to read and to do basic arithmetic. And then he led out in the family educationally. She says, with no all his life, with no thought of fatigue or of inconvenience to himself, Mark Stratton traveled miles uncounted to share what he had learned with those less fortunately situated by delivering sermons, lectures, and talks on civic improvement and politics. And every night at dinner, he would, well, they read the Bible twice a day, They read it in the morning and in the evening. And he would, her father was constantly reading aloud to his children and to visitors descriptions of the great deeds of men. She talks about how there were, there would be things from newspaper articles and from the Bible and things like that, just current events and interesting things, but also just the stories of great men and women to inspire his family to want to be better, to want to be noble, to want to want to be their best. He said, and I'm not actually familiar with either of these stories, but my curiosity has definitely peaked now. Two of their favorites were John Maynard, who piloted a burning boat to safety while he slowly roasted at the wheel. I don't know about that. I, if y'all are familiar with that story, let me know. One of her most vivid memories was of the inflection of her father's voice as he would cry in imitation of the captain, John Maynard, and then give the reply until it sank to a mere gasp. Aye, aye, sir. His other favorite was the story of Clement and her lover's immortal answer to her question, shall we meet again? So that was a favorite mealtime activity. And the evenings were full of learning and education. Lots of times, you know, the kids, she said, One of the things that they often did in the evening as well as their schoolwork and their memorization and their spelling bees is they were always active. And so the girls would sew and or help with the rag rugs. So anytime something was any piece of cloth was worn out, whether it was clothing or whatever it might be, it would be torn and cut into these strips and then tied. And she they had really beautiful rag rugs in their house. So she's born to older parents. She's the youngest of 12 kids. Her mom is, I think, 46 when she gives birth to her. And I can't tell from what I studied. I think the birth was hard on her, her sister just older than her, I think. I couldn't get all the ages of all the kids, but maybe six or seven years older than her, it seemed like. And there were probably, I don't know, half the kids or so still at home. There were 12 kids. Two of them died. Those two girls died when they were like eight and nine. And so there were 10 living children. But by the time she came around, half of them were married and gone. And the older ones were, were marrying, you know, courting and marrying as she was growing up and her mother's health seemed already to kind of be broken. She nursed, I think three children who had typhoid fever, maybe. And it really took a toll on her health. And so she was already, Jean was already kind of a nature lover But what happened was she came along so kind of not late. I mean, I'm past 46, (laughs) but, you know, especially back then when they had the toil of so much physical labor and her mother's health was already severely compromised. She'd had 12 children and she had survived this illness and nursed these three children through it. And so her health was pretty broken. She was in bed off and on. And some of that is talked about in the book. And so really, she just went out into the fields and she tells these stories. So the book is is called Laddie. It's named after her older brother, Leander. And I would imagine that the way she tells the story in the book is correct, but she just wasn't wanted. Her older siblings thought the mom was crazy to have more children, and they thought it was silly for their kids to have an aunt that was younger than them. And some of the kids at home just didn't, I mean their money had to stretch a long way and it had to care for a lot of people and their parents were very hardworking. And they had, by the time she was born, had established this beautiful farm and fields and and were growing a lot of things and and well-established. And it was just just like an idyllic place for her to spend the first eight years of her life, which is what she did. But this older brother, Laddie, the way she tells the story in the book, came home one day and the mother had given birth to her or whatever and everybody was just bawling and he was so afraid that somebody had died that when they told him that this little girl had been born he was just ecstatic and he took her in his arms and just kind of adopted her and so since the mom was so sick laddie spent a lot of his time caring for his mom carrying her places watching over her and caring a lot for gene and so who i think her i think her name is genevieve grace geneva grace was her real name, full name. So anyway, she just adored this older brother who cared for her, and she would go out into the fields with the men at a young age, and she would sleep on their coats in the fields while they worked, and wake up to living things looking at her, and just spent this all this time, this idyllic childhood out in nature, and she didn't. She went to school kind of late. Her dad taught her to read and do some some basic arithmetic. Cause that's just was the culture of their home. But she kind of came to this point where she realized that she couldn't, she couldn't learn all of the things she wanted to learn unless she just decided to go to school. And other kids that were younger than her were already going to school. And she, she knew that it was time, but it's amazing because her parents let her choose. They let her decide that she's going to go to school. And so she does go to school and she tells of some adventures there with school and all that kind of thing. And the book takes place over about maybe a year and a half s time. But I want to tell you some things about her life outside of what she shares about this childhood, A few little spots that I thought that I could read. Let's see. He knew the Bible. My father knew the Bible quite well, and he always read before breakfast. But then she said this about her father's prayers. He got right at God and talked like a doctor, and you felt he had some influence, and there was at least a possibility that he might get what he asked for. And she talks a lot about one of the themes of the book is that she's going to say this really big prayer. She's saving up for this moment when she's going to go out alone, you know, into the barn or wherever it is. And she's going to just pour out her heart to God and pray this really big prayer for things that she really, really needs. And it's interesting, her own explorations with her relationship with God. You can tell she's been taught very well, but she's also been left to discover her relationship with God on her own. She loves the Lord all her life. This foundation of loving God is really implanted in her heart. And she she tries prayer a few different times. She's like, I don't know if God heard me that time. But you can tell she's kind of trying to figure it out. But it's really cool to watch her try to figure it out and to come to develop her own relationship with God, which really pays off. There's several stories kind of running simultaneously in the book. And she said that the book is 70% true. You know, there's a whole love story with her older brother that didn't take place. Unfortunately, he actually drowned. I think when he was in his late teens, early twenties, I don't think he ever married. I don't think he ever got to that point, but so it's not obviously all true. It's very much along the vein of the kinds of books that she wrote, but, but very, very autobiographical. Anyway, there's this, there's this really important moment where this sister, this beloved sister has lost her suitor and her heart is breaking. And that's the moment when Jean, she's called little sister in the book goes and prays her big prayer. And she has this beautiful experience with God where this like undeniable faith is just placed on her heart and she just knows God heard her and this man is coming to get her sister and her faith is rewarded and he comes soon thereafter. It's really, really cool. There's a, a beautiful story about one of the sons taking off after a robber and the family praying and and her, her parents, watching her parents, you know, in every crisis, they are praying and reading the Bible and discussing together and trying to come to conclusions about what to do. And in this particular instance, everything works out okay. And the dad says, hereafter, I and all my family who have been through this will know that money is not even worth thinking about when the life and honor of one you love hangs in the balance. So these messages, you can see that she's also been taught So I I made a list, in fact, of some really key principles. They were core principles. I mean, this book is just thick with the principles that the parents taught their children. And there's these magnanimous acts that they do for each other in the book that really just are so ennobling. They just really, I mean, it's hard to read the book. And I mean, I I felt myself being like, I don't even measure up to these people. (laughs) How could I ever be like them? So, you know, you can have these moments of feeling kind of intimidated or whatever, but ultimately it's very, um nobody, it makes you want to be better, you know, it makes you want to elevate yourself. And so I wrote this list of, of lots of principles that she was taught in her home, patience, hard work, excellence, cleanliness, kindness, study developing your gifts, and definitely dependence on and obedience to God, lots and lots of other principles. But you see through the teachings of the parents and the culture of the family, lots and lots of love of truth. And and they tell stories about when they were younger and ways that they had to learn to work together. And, and so definitely that love of truth was very present in her life. And then, you know, I thought about the self-care aspect I'm going to tell you some really cool things about um, about self-discovery and her parents supporting her in that that was really prominent in their home. And, you know, she does talk in the book about how every child was given a high school education, which you had to pay for back then, often send your children away. And then at least two years of, of education beyond that based on the child's interest. And so she tells of one sister going to music school for two years and how the family has to scrape the money together to make that happen for her because they wanted them to develop their gifts. She has a lot of freedom to choose, you know, whether or not she's going to go to school and that kind of thing. Definitely caring for yourself, expecting the best of yourself, doing your duty, managing yourself, self-discipline was huge. And so that love of self, there's this, there are some moments in the book where, I mean, Clearly, you know, it, it feels kind of like bragging, you know, like, like there's these moments where she (laughs) brags on her family and her parents to such a degree that you're kind of like, "Eh." you know, it's, it seems almost prideful, but there's this, there's this confidence that she carried all her life. That was part of the way that their family saw themselves, the way that these children were taught to see themselves. The parents loved themselves. They knew that they were good, hardworking, integrous people. They talk often about striving to be a good influence in their community, to teach others true principles, to be of influence in the community, to sacrifice their time and effort for others. But also just, I don't know, like there's just this feeling about we are valuable. We know who we are. We know God loves us. And it comes from living those principles of self-love. They have that foundation of love of God and obedience to him. And then they really do care for themselves and for each other well. They really do manage themselves and their emotions. Like they just don't get totally and completely out of control. It's kind of contrasted with the neighbor who does and the fruits. And it's really cool because there's this kind of another culminating story where the author, Jean Stratton Porter, pauses for a minute to compare her mom to the neighbor's mom. And to kind of show you how, and it's so valuable, so valuable. I hope that that women, especially moms that go through our level two program and do the principles of motherhood section, will take the time to study Laddie because she takes the time to help you understand that if her mom, being the woman that she was, had gone through the same trial and actually she had gone through many of her own trials And you can see her different response to those trials than this neighbor's mom and how things would have been different if the mom just would have been different. The dad would have been different. The the family wouldn't have been fractured. Like, Just how much power the mother holds and how by being confident and self-assured and self-disciplined, by standing firm on the principles she knew to be true by sacrificing continually, even when it was hard. And even when her body was hurting by doing everything she knew to do and doing it with excellence, she raised a certain kind of family and she was a certain kind of person. And, and she responded to crises differently that helped the family stay together and not fracture, help them reconnect and to stay bonded. So really, really awesome how she communicates that. I wanted to take a minute to tell you she pays tribute to her father. So what happens is, in fact, I've got this timeline on the back. I'll tell you a little bit. So they marry three years later, they move to Wabash County, Indiana. Um, 10 years later, they move on to the farm and they live there for, they've been there 15 years before Jean shows up and they've had time to mature. You know, the dad is 50 by this point and, they're really at their intellectual prime. They've had a lot of practice parenting other children. And, you know, I do see some of this. I do, I know that I'm a better mother to these last two that I have at home than I, I was to some of my older kids. I feel like, I feel like I, <laughs> I hope I, I'm a better person, a better mom. I hope I'm a better mom to all of them, but they just get some of that at a younger age. And there's actually a conversation in the book between to the dad and, and a, and a neighbor about, the, the benefits that Jean has from that. But anyway, so she's born in 1863, right in the middle of the Civil War. And her mother's health, again, is already kind of broken. And so this is, this is really sad. When she's nine, her sister Marianne dies in an accident. I don't know what that accident was. And then this beloved brother, Laddie, drowns that same year, just four or five months after his sister dies. So the mom has already lost these two daughters to illness, And then she loses these two children in 1872. And um, I'm not sure how old they were, but Jean was nine. And so just two years later, they moved away from this beloved farm that they'd been at. What would that be? 25, 26, 27 years, something like that. They've had this farm that they loved and they've just made it this heaven on earth. They move into town and lease their farm to try to get their mother more medical help. And I, I think that the father couldn't maintain it as well as he wanted to as well with, with the mother's health in the way that it was. And she dies the next year. So by the time Jean is, how old would she have been? Uh, 12 years old, she's lost three close family members. So they stay there, I guess. And she actually said later on, I guess they never went back to this farm and so this story of laddie where she's you know seven eight nine years old starting school that was really the high point in this family's lives when mother was still healthy enough to be involved and engaged and when the farm was the beautiful place that they had made it to be and anyway really idyllic and so the mother dies And interestingly enough, Wabash, Indiana, where they were, was the first place in the United States to have its streets lighted by electricity in 1880. Fun fact. So when she's 20, about 21, she becomes engaged to a man who was 13, 14 years older than her, something like that. And he was, he was already kind of financially established. So she never did struggle really a lot financially like her parents had. And, a couple years later, she had her daughter, Jeanette, but she never had any other children. I think something must have happened that she couldn't bear any more children. You know, that was a little bit more common back then. I couldn't find a lot of details on that, but she did only ever have one child. I'm sure she would have loved to have more, but she just had her one daughter. And then just a few years later, just three years after her daughter was born, her father died so let me tell you a little bit more about her adult life you can see how oh i was going to tell you about her dad and the self-discovery component in their home you can definitely see those four foundational laws being lived in her home in just an absolutely stellar way the education was absolutely top-notch there's a list given here somewhere of all of the great classics that the father read he was so well versed in history he read all the great historians and he shared that knowledge with his children. They didn't just get educated at school, but heavily educated at home. And then, of course, they helped their children get into a profession of their choosing. So she says, she says about her education that she did go to school. Oh, this is a really cool story. I want to tell you the story. So <laughs> she hated math. And she I don't know exactly how old she would have been at this point. It was probably after they moved into town probably in her early teen years and i would guess that it was after her mother passed while her father finished raising her and she says that she had not had very many books when they lived on the farm but when she moved into town she had a lot more she says uh, here we had in town, here we had magazines and more books in which I was interested. The one volume in which my heart was enwrapped was a collection of masterpieces of fiction belonging to my eldest sister. It contained Paul and Virginia, udine P- Picciola, the Vicar of Wakefield, which I have read that one and Pilgrim's Progress. So, so great. And several others I soon learned by heart and the reading and rereading of these exquisitely expressed and conceived stories may have done much in forming high conceptions of what really constitutes literature and in furthering the lofty ideals instilled by my parents. And so she goes on to tell the story about how um, she was given an assignment in school to write a paper about math. And she absolutely hated math. And so she, she put it off and put it off. She didn't do anything with it until the night before and the teacher had called for it. And she kept giving excuses about why she wasn't ready and putting it off to the last day. And I was told to bring my work the next morning without fail. I went home in hot anger. I mean, this girl is very independent. Why in all this beautiful world would they not allow me to do something I could do and let any one of four members of my class who reveled in mathematics do my subject? That evening I was distracted. I can't do a paper on mathematics, and I won't, I said stoutly, but I'll do such a paper on a subject as I can write about as will open their foolish eyes and make them see how wrong they are. Okay, so she gets out her story of Picciola. I think that's how you say it, I'm not actually sure. And She said, instantly I began to write, breathlessly I wrote for hours, I exceeded our limit ten times over. There's an account in the book, an Italian count, I guess, and she lives right alongside him and she writes some heartbreaking story. She She doesn't say exactly what the story is about. So she goes to school the next day and she tries to go in late to all the recesses and breaks so she won't get called on and finally the teacher's like, you have to come up right now and read your paper. So she stands up there and she says, I waited until yesterday because I knew absolutely nothing about my subject. The audience laughed. And I could find nothing either here or in the library at home. So last night I reviewed St. masterpiece, Picciola. Then instantly I began to read. I was almost paralyzed by my audacity. And with each word, I expected to hear a terse little interruption. So she thought the teacher was just going to make her stop and say, where is your paper on math? Imagine my amazement when I heard at the end of the first page, "Wait a minute." Of course I waited, and the principal left the room. A moment later she reappeared accompanied by the superintendent of the city schools. "Begin again," she said, "take your time." I was so too amazed to speak. Then thought came in a rush. My paper was good. It was as good as I believed it. It was better than I had known. I did go on, we took that assembly room and the core of teachers into our confidence, the count and I, and told them all that was in our hearts about our little flower that sprang between the paving stones of a prison yard. So the count from the story that she rewrote this story about. So she got this huge affirmation of her talents that day and started to see that her desire to write, her first work I think was called Ode to the Moon She wrote this little poem about the moon. Of course, she'd spent all her childhood wandering around outside and exploring nature. In fact, she said that if she reported three times a day when the bill rang at at mealtime and it looked like she was still had enough clothing on her body, she was allowed to go back out and wander around more. So, and then I guess after dinner time, they would come in and then she would do some lessons with her father. But Her days were her own to just learn about nature, and boy, it it was embedded on her soul. So at one point, her sister got really sick, and she had to leave school for three months. She said, unlike my schoolmates, I studied harder after leaving school than ever before and in a manner that did me real good. The most that can be said of what education I have is that it is the very best kind in the world for me the only possible kind that would not ruin a person of my inclinations. The others of my family had been to college. I always had been too thankful for words. Circumstances intervened, which saved my brain from being run through a groove in company with dozens of others of while widely different intra- tastes and mentality. What small measure of success. I love this. Oh, listen to this. What small measure of success I have had has come through preserving my individual point of view method of expression, and following in after life, the Spartan regulations of my girlhood home. That's the kind of self-discipline that was drummed into her after she had this time of roaming and exploring and learning. She was taught to be very, very self-disciplined. Whatever I have been able to do has been done through the line of education. My father saw fit to give me and through his and my mother's methods of rearing me. And of course, Anyone who knows anything about me knows that I've done a lot of homeschooling on and off, doing it again now. I've got one son who we tried in a pretty challenging charter school, and it wasn't challenging enough for him. And I've got another daughter who's a competitive gymnast and is only home about four and a half hours in the middle of the day between gymnastics sessions. So that's, we just, in order to give them what they need and allow them to pursue their goals, that's just what we had to do. And I hope that I am doing what Jean Stratton's Porter's parents did. I hope that I'm taking each child in stride and giving them the education that they need. And, and looking back, they were all very different, you know, and had different challenges. But anyway, so her, so she has this tribute to her father She says, he knew I was boiling and bubbling like a yeast jar in July over some literary work. And if I timidly slipped to him with a composition or a faulty poem, he saw good in it. So he would praise her work and he made suggestions for its betterment. When I wanted to express something in color, he went to an artist, sketched a design for an easel, personally superintended the carpenter who built it and provided tuition. So as soon as she said she wanted to learn to do art, he had an easel built especially for her and paid for her to take art classes. On that same easel, I painted the watercolors for moths of the Limberlost. And one of the most poignant regrets of my life is that he was not there to see them and to know that the easel in which he built, that the easel which he built through his faith in me was finally used in illustrating a book. Isn't that beautiful? If I thought it was music through which I could express myself, he paid for lessons and detected hidden ability that should be developed. Through the days of struggle, he stood fast, firm in his belief in me. He was half the battle. It was he who demanded a physical standard that developed strength to endure the rigors of scientific field and dark room work and the building of 10 books in 10 years. Five of which were on nature subjects, having my own illustrations and five novels, literally teeming with natural history, true to nature. So he expected her to push herself physically, and he helped develop in his children mental, spiritual, physical, and emotional stamina. And she really attributes that, especially to her father. It was he who demanded of me from birth the finishing of any task I attempted and who taught me to cultivate patience to watch and wait even years if necessary to find and secure material I wanted. It was he who daily lived before me the life of exactly such a man as I portrayed in The Harvester and who constantly used every atom of brain and body power to help and encourage all men to do the same. What an unbelievable tribute to her father. And she just praises him to the skies in Laddie and really feels like she can trace back the confidence she later had and the stamina and ability to do what she did to the training that she received in her formative years. And those four laws of life mission were drilled into her and her parents talked often of their obligation to the greater community, their need to reach outside themselves. You know, the, 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 her father, like she said, spoke around and gave sermons and was the County. uh, I can't remember what it's called for a long time, kept the accounts and, Oversaw the building of roads and bridges and tried to build up America. Very, very, very patriotic family believed in what they were doing, etc. So she grows up, she marries Porter, and um, she said, Marriage, a home of her own, and a daughter for a time filled the author's hands, but never her whole heart and brain. And I want to talk to you for just a minute about the way that she saw her role in her home, because it's so exactly like, and I just didn't guess when I, in fact, we put up this this event that I was going to, you know, I was going to talk about Jean Stratton Porter before I had finished the research. And of course, I was just delighted to see that her life so closely exemplifies what we're trying to model here. Now, many of us have more than one child, but, you know, as I thought about it, I thought, because of our modern conveniences, the amount of work that she explains doing with just one child does very much compare to the amount of work we would do for multiple children. Now, some of us are homeschooling, which is more work. So maybe we don't have quite as much leisure time as she did. But let me, let me tell you how she describes the way that she ran her home. I could not afford a maid, but I was very strong, vital to the marrow, and I knew how to manage life to make it meet my needs thanks to even the small amount I had seen of my mother. I kept a cabin of 14 rooms and kept it immaculate. I made most of my daughter's clothes. I kept a conservatory in which there bloomed from three to 600 bulbs every winter, tended a house of canaries and linnets, and cooked and washed dishes besides three times a day. So then she says, in my spare time, and these are her own words, in my spare time, mark the word, there was time to spare else the books never would have been written in the pictures made. I mastered photography. So what she, what she started out doing is she gets married to a man that she loves and respects and that she wants to build a family with. She has her daughter, she puts her marriage and she actually makes a comment later on about that, you know, we should work really hard to make our marriages work and, and, and all that kind of stuff, not divorce, if we can help it. But she spends her spare time developing her talents and doing things that she wants to do that she loves to do. And the first one that she really masters in photography, she uses the family bathroom as the darkroom. She says, washing negatives and prints on turkey platters in the kitchen. And in fact, her pictures were so good that the paper, the print paper company contacted her and wanted to know how she did it. I wanted to, they actually sent someone over to watch her develop her film to try to figure out how she made better photographs than they were able to because she just worked and worked and worked to perfect her craft. So then the first thing that she did and it's interesting that she was an author and she loved to write, but photography was kind of her first entrance into her own, you know, she, she calls herself an ambitious woman and she wanted to do important things. And she wanted, there were kind of two driving forces behind what she did. And the first one was to share nature with others. She could see that people were moving into the cities. She could see that they were getting away from nature and she wanted to bring nature to them. And she wanted to kindle the desire to be in nature and learn from nature and have it rejuvenate you. And so she brought nature to the world through her photography. And, and just a minute, I'll tell you a story about the kind of price that she paid, some of the prices that she paid to get the kind of photographs and artwork that she did get. So she, she said she didn't want to fail. So, um, She didn't let even her husband or her daughter or any of her immediate family know what she was doing when she started. In fact, for quite a while, like they knew she took nature pictures and that she loved what she did, but they didn't know that she was sending out pictures and eventually sending out stories like to magazines and stuff because she didn't want them to know if she failed, like she wanted to succeed first and then tell them. So she sent her photographs to a a magazine called Recreation. Listen to this. With the first installment, she was asked to take charge of the department and furnish material each month for which she was to be paid at current prices in high-grade photographic material. We can form some idea of the work she did under this arrangement from the fact that she had over $1,000 worth of equipment at the end of the first year. So this is in the late... When did she marry? She married and had her daughter... Married in 86, her daughter in 87. So she's doing this at the very turn of the century. And she's got $1,000 worth of photographic equipment because that's how they're paying her is by giving her equipment and another $500 the following year. And all it did was make her an even better photographer because she was working on better equipment and and then producing stuff and sending it in so then she accepted a place on the natural history staff of outing and then it says after a year of this helpful experience mrs porter began to turn her attention to what she called nature studies sugar-coated with fiction so for those of you that are familiar with laddie this will mean something to you mixing some childhood facts fact with a large degree of grown-up fiction she wrote a little story entitled laddie the princess in the pie her husband owns a store And in this store, they have magazines that they sell. And she doesn't want anyone to know what she's doing at first. She went into, let's see, she went into the store and looked over the magazines And she chose one that they didn't subscribe to, so nobody around could see it. And in fact, she said of herself that she, another reason she was so afraid to fail was because she was in a, she said, I was in a community where I was already severely criticized on account of my ideas of housekeeping, dress, and social customs. I purposely kept everything I did as quiet as possible. Now, when I tell you in a minute, what she felt her call was, it will absolutely blow your mind that people were critical of her. Because it was just like, it was so incredibly noble what she was trying to do. And she was so committed to the same values and principles as the people around her, like maybe even more so, but she thought outside the box. Like she just decided that her spare time was hers, that she was going to be a devoted mom. She was going to be a devoted wife. She made her daughter's clothes. She cooked the meal. She did the dishes. She kept the house immaculate. She helped educate her daughter. She was there for her husband, but she had time of her own and she used it to become the best that she could be. And she blessed, I mean, they said this was written in 1916 before she even died, uh, died about eight years later, actually in a car accident. is not that crazy. They said they guessed that she had over 50 million readers and her books. And this is only like, this is like 20 years into her submitting the stuff. And now she'd had a lifetime of studying like mad, like that love of humanity, that learning to be a servant leader and getting an incredible education. Boy, she, she had done that as well. So incredible. So she sends this story to this, (laughs) this is such a cute story. She sends this story, Laddie the Princess in the Pie, to this magazine that they don't subscribe to. And she sends it off to a Mr. Maxwell and she rents a post office box so that when she gets letters back, her family won't know if she's been rejected. So she could just tell them if she finally has success. So she sends this letter off and she said she had heard that it required a long time for them to get back to you. So she waited like all summer and she didn't hear anything back and she was really frustrated. And then she says, (laughs) then one September day, I went into our store on an errand and the manager said to me, I read your story in the Metropolitan last night. It was great. Did you ever write any fiction before? And she's like, what? Like, first of all, how did this get published without me knowing? And second of all, I was trying to keep it away from the people that were close to me so no one would find out. And here's the manager of the store they own telling her he's read it so she she says my head whirled." but i had learned to keep my own counsels so i said as lightly as i could while my heart beat until i feared he could hear it no just a simple little thing have you any copies any spare copies my sister might want one (laughs) kind of like it was just a common everyday thing and no surprise he gives her this copy and she goes home and reads it and she thinks "Uh, i quite agreed with the manager that it was great Listen to this, its is so fascinating. Then I wrote Mr. Maxwell a note telling him that I had seen my story in his magazine and saying that I was glad he liked it enough to use it. I had not known a letter could reach New York and bring a reply so quickly as his answer came. So she heard right back from him. It was a letter that warmed the deep of my heart. Mr. Maxwell mo- wrote that he liked my story very much, but the office boy had lost or destroyed my address with the wrappings. So when they unwrapped the thing, he didn't take note of the return address and they just threw it away and she hadn't included it on the paper. So after waiting a reasonable length of time to hear from me, he had illustrated it the best he could and printed it. He wrote that so many people had spoken to him of a new fresh note in it that he wished me to consider doing him another in a similar vein for a Christmas letter leader and he enclosed my very first check for fiction. So then I wrote how Laddie and the princess spelled down at the Christmas bee. <laughs> this is also funny. So he, just, he decides she's going to write this story. And if you've read Laddie, it's, it's from that book as well. They spell at the Christmas bee. But Mr. Maxwell was pleased to accept that also with what I'd considered high praise. And he asked me to furnish the illustrations. He specified what he wanted for all the pictures. He wanted seven or eight illustrations to go with it counting out the time for his letter to reach me and the material i had to return to him i realized i had one day in to secure the pictures (laughs) so she had to hurry and write this piece because it was i guess november by this time and it was going to come out at christmas and she so she ransacked her cabin for costumes and she spent the entire day outfitting people and going to different locations and hurrying and taking these pictures and she was up all night getting the negatives ready and getting it so that it could be on the six o'clock train the next morning so that it could go out. And she was just devoted, like so devoted to her work and wanted that to go out and and be able to be printed. Going back a little bit to what I was saying about how she felt about her spare time. And, you know, she, she was so courageous because she knew that she stood on principle and she knew that she was a good woman and she knew that her her motivations were noble. And she knew that God was calling her to do these things. And she knew that they would have a positive impact on the world. And so she just had the courage to ignore what people said, to not give them any notice and to just charge forward doing the things that she loved to do. So she said, I argued that if I kept my family so comfortable that they missed nothing from their usual routine, It was my right to do what I could toward furthering my personal ambitions in what time I could save from my housework. And until I could earn enough to hire capable people to take my place, I held rigidly to that rule. So kind of as a tribute to how much her family knew that they were loved, even though she was off doing all this work, she talks about how and why she dedicated the book Freckles to her husband. One of the things, and I just, oh, there's so much to tell you. And I have so little time, but she was so devoted to her nature work and, and publishers and editors told her over and over and over again to take the nature work out of her stories. In fact, Freckles was so full of real nature photos that people thought it was a nature book and they didn't even realize it was a novel. And so it took years to take off and to gain kind of an audience because people had to actually get into it and realize what it was. The Cardinal was, and so actually what she did, she mentioned earlier, is that for 10 years, she released 10 books and every other one was a nature book. So she would do nature book, novel, nature book, novel. It's just unbelievable the pace she kept up. And her daughter must have been a bit older because she was born in 1887. And in 1901, she sent in the princess and the pie. So her daughter would have already been 13 or 14 years old. And then the song of the cardinal two years later when her daughter would have been 15 and then freckles came out when she was 16. So she was well, especially in that day and age. I mean, girls would still, you know, marry a little younger and all this kind of thing. So her daughter was very mature by the time she was spending extra amounts of time. Daughter was 15 or 16 years old, probably helping somewhat in the work that she was doing, but she had more time, you know? And so she used it in her work. So, she, this book freckles. So I got to tell you this story and then I'll finish up with some of what she said about the motivations behind her work and why she was doing what she was doing and, and how just noble her purposes were. She said that I, she said, I dedicated the book to my husband, Mr. Charles Darwin Porter for several reasons. The chiefest being that he deserved it. So she, there was a swamp, the liver lost, and it was totally un disturbed at the time that she was out there and it was in fact she said it was so awful in there that they could only endure it by dipping napkins in deodorant and binding them over our mouths and nostrils okay and there was a family that lived they lived just north of it in in her Limberlost cabin and in fact two of her properties are owned by um illinois right is where she was they're owned by the state and they're pub like part of the public parks and you can take tours of them and things like that she had been over there and this huge feather had dropped in her path and she wanted, and she found that it was from a group of vultures or something. And she wanted to, I don't, I didn't understand all the details, but basically she needed to go study them. And so she went to her husband and she was like, I, I have to, I have to do this. I have to go study this black vulture. The lumberman who went in there to get different types of lumber from the swamp told her about the nest of the black vulture. She said, I hastened to tell my husband the wonderful story of the big black bird, the downy white baby, the pale blue egg, and to beg back a rashly made promise not to work in the limberlost. She said, the limberlost, being in the limberlost at that time was no joke. She said, I guess they, they shared a love of natural history and of, and of nature. She said, being a natural history enthusiast himself, he agreed that I must go. But he said he had to go, she had to go with someone. And he decided that he would be the one accompanying her into the swamp. She said it was a time before the swamp had been shorn, branded, and tamed. And there were excellent reasons why I should not go there. Much of it was impenetrable. It was actually very dangerous to go into the swamp aside from the fact that it absolutely smelled awful. So I'm going to read this paragraph to you about what they had to do in order to go and get the photographs of the, this vulture family and the, the eggs and the baby birds being born and to study them, to be able to write about them. Because Everything she did, she did firsthand, and she took the pictures, and sometimes she turned the photographs into artwork, and sometimes she included the photographs, and um, she was always writing from her own personal experience, the things that she had actually seen and experienced, so she said, they took a rod, we took a rod inside the swamp on a road leading to an oil well we mired to the carriage hubs. I shielded my camera in my arms, and before we reached the well, I thought the conveyance would be torn to pieces and the horses stalled. At the well we started on foot Mr Porter in knee boots I in waist-high waders the time was late June we forced excuse me we forced our way between steaming fetid pools through swarms of gnats flies mosquitoes poisonous insects keeping a sharp watch out for rattlesnakes we sank ankle-deep at every step and logs we thought solid broke under us our progress was a steady succession of prying and pulling each other to the surface. Our clothing was ringing wet, and the exposed parts of our bodies lumpy with bites and stings. My husband found the tree, cleared the opening to the great prostrate log, traversed its unspeakable odors for nearly 40 feet to its farthest recess, and brought the baby and egg to the light in his leaf-lined hat. Every third day for almost three months, we made this trip until little chicken was able to take wing. So they did this for three months. Every three days, they waded through this muck and mire in this awful swamp that was actually could have taken their lives. It was so dangerous. Any one of them could have been bitten by a rattlesnake. It was not only just disgusting and gross, it was highly dangerous. They went there every three days in order to take pictures of this vulture baby. Absolutely unbelievable. Another unbelievable thing that she did is that she wanted to do these pictures of moths and butterflies. And she kept wanting to get pictures of them but she couldn't get out there and capture them quick enough so she started growing her own she says okay she used every opportunity to, to secure more and representative studies of each family in her territory and eventually found the work so fascinating. She began hunting cocoons and raising caterpillars in order to secure life histories and make illustrations with fidelity to life. So she wanted to follow the stories of these moths through multiple generations. Let's see. It seems that scientists and lepidopterists however you say that from the beginning have had no hesitation in describing and using mounted moth and butterfly specimens for book text and illustration despite the fact that their colors fade rapidly that the wings are always in unnatural positions and the body shriveled i would quite as soon accept the mummy of any particular member of the ramses family as a fair representative of the living man as a mounted moth for a live one So she wanted this to be authentic, like everything that she did. So she just wasn't going to settle for less. So she said, when she failed to secure the moth, she wanted in a living and perfect specimen for her studies. She set out to raise one, making photographic studies from the eggs through the entire life process. There was one June during which she scarcely slept for more than a few hours of daytime the entire month. She turned her bedroom into a hatchery where were stored the most precious cocoons, and if she lay down at night, it was with those she thought would produce moths before morning on her pillow, where she could not fail to hear them emerge. <laughs> she literally didn't sleep for a whole month while she was trying to get all these authentic perfect pictures of these moths as they first emerged from their cocoons and she would if she thought they were going to break open in the middle of the night she would only go to sleep if she set the cocoons on her pillow so she'd hear them emerging at the first sound she would be up with notebook in hand and by dawn busy with cameras then she would be forced to hurry to the dark room and develop her plates in order to be sure that she had a perfect night. likeness before releasing the specimen for she did release all she produced except one pair of each kind having never sold a moth personally so often where the markings were wonderful and complicated as soon as the wings were fully developed mrs porter copied the living specimen of watercolors for her illustrations frequently making several copies in order to be sure she laid on the color enough brighter than her subject so that when it died it would be exactly the same shade her commitment to excellence is absolutely unbelievable. (laughs) I mean, the kinds of things that she did to make her work absolutely perfect. And she just ignored, she just ignored all these editors that told her that she couldn't include the nature elements in her stories. And, And those are some of the things that people adored the most. So I want to finish up. We've been a very long time I've kept you a long time, but I want to finish up by telling you what she said about her work. At one point, she said, three editors who read Freckles before it was published offered to produce it, but all of them expressed precisely the same opinion. The book will never sell well as it is. If you want to live from the proceeds of your work, if you want to sell even moderately, you must cut out the nature stuff. This is Jean Stratton-Porter. This is what she says about it. Now, to put in the nature stuff was the express purpose for which the book had been written. (laughs) It had one year's experience with the Song of the Cardinal, frankly, a nature book. And from the start, I realized I could never reach the audience I wanted with a book on nature alone. To spend time writing a book based wholly upon human passion and its outworking, I would not. So I compromised on a book into which I put all the nature work that came naturally within its scope and seasoned it with little bits of imagination and straight copy from the lives of men and women. I had known intimately folk who lived in a simple common way with which I was familiar. So I said to my publishers, I shall write the books exactly as they take shape in my mind. You publish them. I know they will sell well enough that you will not lose. And if I do not make over $600 on a book, I shall never utter a complaint, make up my work as I think it should be and leave it to the people as to what kind of book they will take into their hearts and homes. So they worked under this agreement. So I want to read you a, a, a few other quotes about what she says, because it's so phenomenal. She says, my years of nature work have not been without considerable insight into human nature. I know its failings, its inborn tendencies, its weaknesses, its failures, its depth of crime. And the people who feel called to spend their time analyzing, digging into, and uncovering these sources of depravity have that privilege. More's the pity. I have lived mostly in the country and worked in the woods. For every bad man and woman I have ever known, I have met, lived with, and am intimately acquainted with an overwhelming number of thoroughly clean and decent people, who still believe in god and cherish high ideals and it is upon the lives of these that i base what i write to contend that this does not produce a picture true to life is idiocy it does it produces a true a picture true to ideal life to the best that good men and good women can do at level best she says I care very little for the magazine or newspaper critics who proclaim that there is no such thing as a moral man and that my pictures of life are sentimental and idealized they are and I glory in them. They are straight living pictures from the lives of men and women of morals honor and loving kindness. They form idealized pictures of life because they are copies from life where it touches religion chastity love home and hope of heaven, ultimately. None of these roads leads to publicity and the divorce court. They all end in the shelter and seclusion of a home. Such a big majority of book critics and authors have begun to teach, whether they really believe it or not, that no, true book, that no book is true to life unless it is true to the worst in life. That idea has infected even the women. And I, oh, I loved that because it's true. I mean, I have a whole lecture on what is a classic and and what makes something a classic. And the def one of the one of the points that I make that's so important is that the definition of classic has changed. That's why in the 20th century people pull up classics, but then they read about depraved people, debauched people, people who don't have high morals, who don't want to do noble things, and that's what's called a classic. And he she says, I re- I mean that was already happening in the early 1900s, and she says. I just reject that whole picture. I know that, in fact, where does she say it? She says it over and over again in here, what what her noble goal is. Oh, there's just so many things I want to read to you. She agree Okay she agreed with her publishers to alternate her books she agreed to do a nature book for love and then by way of compromise a piece of nature work spiced with enough fiction to tempt her her class of readers in this way she hoped that they would absorb enough of the nature work while reading the fiction to send them afield, and at the same time keep their minds keep in their minds her picture of what she considers the only life worth living she was still assured that only a straight novel would pay, but she was living, meeting all her expenses, giving her family many luxuries and saving a little sum for a rainy day she foresaw in her horoscope. To be comfortably clothed and fed, to have time and tools for her work is all she ever asked of life. And the people that surrounded her continually said she just was not driven by money. She wanted her books to sell. She didn't want the publishers to you know, go backwards or lose money. But she knew that there were enough readers, that they could all make out okay. And she was going to do what she felt was best for people she was going to give them what she believed they needed to have. She says, I, she, she knows that she knew that she could have just written straight novels and made more money but she was unwilling to do it she talks about the harvester, and he's kind of fashioned around her dad. And it started with learning about ginseng and what the Chinese thought about it. So she started studying herbs and she decided to write the story about about these herbs. She said, I could have gone to work and started a drug farm myself with exactly the same profit and success as the harvester because she'd done so much study by the time the book was written. I wrote primarily to state that to my personal knowledge, clean loving men still exist in this world and that no man is forced to endure the grind of city life if he wills otherwise anyone who likes with even such simple means as herbs he can dig from fence corners may start a drug farm that in a short time will yield him delightful work and independence i wrote the book as i thought it should be written to prove my points and establish my contentions i think it did men the globe around promptly wrote me that they always had observed the moral code others that the subject never in all their lives had been presented to them from my point of view but now that it had been they would change and do what they could to influence all men to do the same. So again, she really wants people to want to live a more noble life. She says specifically of Laddie, that critics said no such people ever existed and no such life was ever lived. And she says, of a truth, The home I described in this book, I knew to the last grain of wood in the doors, and I painted it with absolute accuracy. And many of the people I described, I knew more intimately than I have known any others. Taken as a whole, it represents a perfectly faithful picture of home life in a family who were reared and educated exactly as the book indicates. She says, what is the difference between my books and those of other writers is that I prefer to describe and perpetuate the best I have known in life. And let me leave you with a couple just really inspiring quotes. To deny that wrong and pitiful things exist in life is folly, but to believe that these things are made better by promiscuous discussions at the hands of writers who fail to prove by their books that their viewpoint is either right, clean, or helpful is close to insanity. So she says, of course, we're not going to deny that there are sad and hard things in life, but to just, well, let me go on. If there is to be any error on either side in a book, when God knows it is far better that it should be upon the side of pure sentiment and high ideals than upon that of a too loose discussion of subjects, which often open to a large part of the world, their first knowledge of such forms of sin, profligate expenditure and waste of life's best opportunities. There's one great beauty in idealized romance. Reading it can make no one worse than he is, while it may help thousands to a cleaner life and higher inspiration than they have ever known. So her whole argument is, people tell me that these things can't be true, that these kinds of people don't really live, that that my work is too idealized and too noble. And she says, what good's it doing people? for us to dredge up the worst in human nature and continually dwell upon it and write book after book after book about what's about the worst part of human nature because what I write can't do anybody any harm, but what it can do is make them better. She never considered money in relation to what she was writing. Again, in relationship to this, she says, I'm neither blind nor lacking in perception as to the waywardness and complications of human nature. It is merely that my call has been to reproduce the lives of clean, moral men and women who are spending their time and strength in an effort to make the world a better place for themselves and their children. All natural history I have ever put into a book has been the result of personal investigation, clean, straight stuff, scientifically verified in every instance, and all characters that I have ever incorporated in a book I have tried sincerely to use in the working out of recognized and high principles of conduct. And this is the last thing I'll share with you that she says, To my way of thinking and working, the greatest service a piece of fiction can do any reader is to leave him with a higher ideal of life than he had when he began. If in one small degree it shows him where he can be a gentler, saner, cleaner, kindlier man, it is a wonder-working book. If it opens his eyes to one beauty in nature he never saw for himself and leads him one step toward the God of the universe, it is a beneficial book. For one step into the miracles of nature leads to that long walk, the glories of which so strengthen even a boy who thinks he is dying that he faces his struggle like a gladiator. So that is a little bit more about the life of Jean Stratton Porter. She did write all 10 of those books. She actually had freckles made into a movie. She moved to Los Angeles in 1919. And she was one of the first women to start her own production company and see a few of her movies put into production. She, the year that she started her production company, right at the beginning of the year, she died at the end of the year. And her chauffeur hit into a, a rail car and she was thrown out of the car and died a few hours later. But I have to tell you, I was very inspired learning and reading about Jean Stratton Porter, truly a mission-driven mom, truly a mission-driven woman a noble woman who wanted to elevate people and bring out the best that nature had to offer them and the best that their nature had to offer them and to hold before them perhaps a little bit idealized picture of how life could be so that we would all desire to be a little bit better. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's such a joy to share these kinds of stories. I would love to hear requests. You can put them up in our Facebook group, You can put them up in um, the notes, the show notes on the web page for this particular podcast when it comes out. And you can email us if you want, (laughs) if you have other individuals that you would love for us to do mission-driven stories on or that you would love for us to interview, then we would be, I'd I'd love to hear who those people are. Anyway, I hope you have a wonderful day. Thanks for joining me today. If you haven't been to our new website at the missionroommom.com, head over there. You can see some new awesome opt ins. And um, anything else we can do for you, let us know. Have a wonderful day.